Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to another great episode of Family Business Radio. I am your host, Anthony Chen. Today, we have three new power guests today to discuss with us about rehab, business planning and succession, and a bit of taxes as well. So our first guest, I would like to welcome James Conley with Results Rehab. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks for having me, Anthony. I appreciate it. Great. Appreciate you having on. So kind of share with us kind of your, your background. What got you into PT? Oh, man. Well, that's that goes way back for me. So bear with me for a second, though. Sure. That goes back to my personal story. When I was actually eight months old, I actually had a stroke. So it affected the left side of my body. And um, I ended up going through a lot of PT, a lot of I had a lot of surgeries, corrective surgeries as a kid. I had three of them. And after each one of those, I had physical rehab for that physical therapy for that. And for me as a kid, you know, it was always a fun thing to do. It was always, oh, I'm going to physical therapy. I'm going to play essentially for an hour. Because if you know anything about like pediatric physical therapy, the therapists make it fun for the kid, you know. So as I was going into college, you know, like any college kid, I was wondering, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Let me find out what I'm going to do. You know, and I thought about business like anybody does. Uh, but I knew that wasn't the case for me. And PT just kind of landed naturally. So obviously having that background and having that natural natural experience with it, it fit for me. Um, so then I, when I graduated, I, I decided on PT, got into with Benchmark. and they were a great opening organization for me. Loved it. Started treating clients off of it. Um, but I kind of got burned out, you know, and then was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then COVID happened. Lo and behold, unfortunately, I got furloughed for that from that. And then I just kind of started to think about what I wanted to do, you know, where I wanted to take PT. And I kind of just settled on, let's just try to start my own business. Um, and that for me, it was kind of a it was an eye-opening experience because I don't have any personal business training. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm coming out. I'm saying I don't really know the business side of things. Let's just kind of see where it goes. You know, I'm kind of doggy paddling along, trying to figure. And it's it's been it's been an eye-opening experience, but it's been fun because physical therapy is one of those things that I can, you know, I can I can I think improves people's lives and is an eye-opening experience to be able to if people have an injury to be able to show them. You're not going to be injured for life. You know, if you do these certain exercises, we can rehab you through this process um, and you can you can get the back to doing the life that you enjoy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just been a really fun process for me to be able to go through the experience of opening my own business and taking through people what they want to do and get them back to the activities that they love doing. Mm -hmm. So for our audience who, who are not kind of familiar with physical therapy, can you kind of describe what are the functions of a physical therapist? Like what, what do you do behind the scenes? Yeah. So there's, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it can be kind of a common misconception to where some people, you know, think, oh, are you a massage therapist? Can I just come to you to get a massage for an hour? Or can you, are you a personal trainer? You know, and I think PT is the best kept secret, you know, which is a good thing and a bad thing we're notoriously bad marketers we don't really market ourselves very well so pt in, in general is it, and i'm going to read a strict definition it's a tool that's used to promote maintain or restore health through physical exam diagnosis prognosis 
patient education, rehab, disease promotion, and health promotion. And that's a mouthful, but I want to focus on the last couple of that, the disease prevention and health promotion. So I think that kind of sets us apart apart from the current healthcare model, where it's the current healthcare model is focused more on um, reaction. Take this pill, use this medicine, which, of course, a lot of times is necessary. And I'm not I'm not downplaying that it's needed a lot of times. But I think what gets lost in that is the preventing illness to begin with, you know. If we can focus on prevention, then people wouldn't have be in this situation to begin with. And as physical therapy, we really preach injury prevention and we teach you the tools and teach you the the proper exercises in order to properly recover and to get back to what you were left to do. And we do that through things such as controlling pain, addressing range of motion, deficits, strength, balance, and coordination. So it's not like some uh, a patient won't come to you when they're already injured. It sounds like you're trying to prevent the injury from coming out to begin with. Exactly. And, you know, in an ideal world, it would be, we would get a lot of people before the injured, but of course, you know, if they're like me, you know, I don't, things get put on the back burner. You don't want to go see another doctor. You know, you don't want to go see another provider. You just want to wait and see what happens. Um, so that's where a big part of my, my philosophy is that I just educate people on, okay, I get that, but then try these exercises beforehand so that it doesn't get worse down the road. Cause a lot of times what I see is people come to me and they're like, man, I had this a year ago and this is just beginning worse and worse. And I hate to hear that. Cause I'm like, if you would have come to me, you know, nine months ago, we could have gotten ahead of this and it wouldn't be this, this terrible thing now where you can barely walk and you can't even play with your kid anymore because you've let it fester so long, you know? So it's just that education to go see your provider as soon as possible. And really what helps with that is in Georgia, we have what's called direct access now. So that means you don't have to have a prescription to see a physical therapist. You have, there's certain little restrictions, like you have eight visits or 21 days without a doctor's prescription to see a physical therapist. And that's been fantastic for for my business in particular, because they can just come straight to me. I can treat them. And first, if they need PT, if they need a referral out, and I can say, you need to go see your doctor. There's something more going on here. But if not, then I can treat them for their diagnosis, again, for up to eight visits or 21 days. And then if they need more physical therapy, if they need more therapy or treatment, then they go to see their doctor. It almost sounds like it would make more sense instead of going right to the doctor when the pain threshold is like already almost 10 out of 10. Uh, as you mentioned, it'd be right. better to get to someone like yourself. Uh, nine months beforehand so i guess the question comes down to at, at what what so for someone who's very athletic or active how would you coach someone how would they know okay this is either just plain soreness or okay this is something serious i should get to someone like yourself to treat the cause because it's not just a regular workout soreness right yeah so that's a good question so it's it's typically like say say let's take like you said like an athlete for instance let's take somebody with a shoulder injury mm. you know, and working out say doing you know shoulder presses at the gym and they're just the next day they're they're sore they're sore for a couple days you know so that's typically that muscle soreness is probably delayed onset muscle soreness that's a that's a very that's a very typical um, process that the body goes through what's not typical though is when you're going through your workout and you have this shoulder tweaking you know you feel a twinge in your shoulder you feel something kind of um, crunching in your shoulder that's painful 
A lot of people, that's the old adage, which I hate this philosophy of the no pain, no gain philosophy. They're just like, oh, I'll just push through it. It'll be fine. It'll get better. And <laughs> I implore people because that just makes it so much worse down the road. So if people have those little tweaks and twinges, yes, per se, it's not bad at that moment, but we like to, to catch it as a PT is to get them in and say, you can do these slight body modification changes, these slight changes in your technique, and that will avoid that, that tweak that you're feeling in your shoulder, and hence it'll avoid injury down the road, you know? <clears throat> so it's, it's a slight mindset change and slight body mechanic change where if we get it ahead of time, then, it, you know, it won't get worse down the road. So it's, slight, it's different than just muscle soreness. It's when you feel that tweaking and injury, and that's when we, we advise you not to push through it and just get some help right then so that it doesn't get worse. So, so those kind of the other old as you probably makes you cringe is, uh, I'll just walk it off. That That's not something that, that you prescribe. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, in some instances, yes, but for the most part, no, we need to, we need to address it then. So it doesn't get worse. Mm-hmm. So let's say for example, so well, well, now that spring, it looks like it is here early and people are getting more physically active outside, uh, whether it be, uh, tennis or softball, um, you mentioned well, well, some of the signs to look for is that kind of that twinge. Uh, is there other signs that they can kind of look out for? Is that okay? This is not a twinge, but something also a sign of a uh, potential injury coming down the road. Yeah, a lot of so a lot of times it's say after you play, you mentioned tennis. After you play tennis and you you get off court and you you notice your back is like still aching. You know, it's not. It's you, you when you go to stand up and you, you feel like it takes you a little bit longer to stand up or you feel like, oh, that's my back and it just won't go away. You feel about 50 years older than you actually are. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing where it's 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 aching pain and it's something that, you know, you feel like you need to take some relief for. You need to put a heating pad on. Um, that is typically a muscular injury. That's a muscular skeletal injury um, to where it's a muscle spasm. But those muscle spasms aren't normal. That's typically indicative of the back muscles tightening up to try to guard and protect where there's some kind of injury going on in the body. And typically people just say, oh, well, I'll throw some heating pad on and I'll take some lead, you know, rub some dirt on it. It'll be fine. And that's where the no pain, no gain, no gain, no pain, no gain mentality comes into play. You know, that's that's the thing I want to toss out. It's, it shouldn't be something that you just tolerate because over time that is going to get worse. So then it kind of leads to the next question is uh, kind of, the, again, probably another tired old adage. Oh, I'm just getting older. This is something that, that kind of goes <laughs> with getting older. Yeah. Uh, but is it possible then uh, that some of these accumulation of pain as starts going up and up is just a problem they've been delaying for so long that it actually made it worse? Or is it actual age that plays an issue as well? No. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I the nail on the head there because – I like to say, you know, age is just a number. And I know you've probably heard that many times, but there's something to be said for that because there's also a saying that motion is lotion. You know, the more we move, the better our body gets because our body responds to movements. Let's take the knee, for example, when our body, when our knee moves, the, the nutrients actually flow into the joint through that movement. You know, think of it like a sponge. When you squish a sponge, you're squishing the nutri- the, the fluid out of the sponge. Um, that's kind of how the knee joint works. And the more you move it, the more lubrication you get to that knee. Um, all that to say, when, when, as you get older, 
things like your meniscus and your knee, those little cushions in your knee joint. They do decrease a little bit, but we know through exercise, um, things like arthritis. Yes, you can get a little bit of arthritis, but research has shown the more you exercise, the more it prevents that arthritis. Because what that does, exercise actually takes pressure off the joint by building up the muscles around the joints. This prevents a lot of that arthritis from getting worse. So, so all this thing I'm being told as being a runner, I'm going to destroy my knees. That, that's kind of a myth now. Yeah, it's, it's funny you bring that up, too, because there was a, um, somebody was talking about this. And this was a research study done in like 2019 where they took a whole, a whole slew of research articles and they analyzed all of them. And they actually shown that re, even runners aren't, aren't any more likely than anybody else to get arthritis. You know, so it's kind of a myth of that high impact activity doesn't actually lead to more injury down the road. Now, that's not to say that if you're already hurting, I don't want you just to go out and run because, again, it's not no pain, no gain. If you push through, it's not going to get worse. So there's a there's a graded activity is what we call it, where if you do have pain in your knees, you need to you need to regress to certain exercises and then slowly build back up to running. Uh, but inherently, no running is not terrible for your knees. So since we're kind of talking uh, about prevention or injury prevention, and as people are getting more active, uh, would there be value to someone coming to you first, even though they might not have some kind of pain or injury onset per se, but to kind of understand form and, and movement and maybe learn a little bit about what workouts they would need to do to prevent potential injuries in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I love to do uh, movement screens for my clients, especially for those, those athletes or people who are just looking to get back into, like you said, tennis or now that the weather's beautiful again, getting my, my golfers, getting them back into it. Always like to maximize their technique to, like you said, to let them be lifelong people who are, who are doing their activities without injuries. Um, so yeah, we always like to get ahead of it and do those slight tweaks to their techniques so they don't get injuries. Mm. And so, so someone coming to you, would they uh, need to have, let's say, initial payment for that first consultation or evaluation? Uh, usually, and it depends on the person. Sometimes I discount it. Um, but, you know, the, the positive thing, so for my business in particular, I'm gonna thank you for bringing that up. My business in particular is a, a concierge mobile business. So I come, and that's really my philosophy. I believed in, in personalized one-on-one care. Because uh, I think now too much there's, especially in the PT world, there's a lot of PT factories out there where they just kind of crank patients out. And unfortunately, it's hindering not only us as practitioners, limiting what we can do, but as clients, they really don't get better as quick because they're just physically not getting as much time with the therapist, you know, and it's unfortunate. Uh, but that's why my model in particular is I spend a full at least an hour with every with my patients every single visit. And really kind of reevaluate, okay, where are you at? What do we need to change? What can we do going forward? It's a constant reevaluation process. So imagine this, they get better quicker because I spend more time with them, you know? So mm-hmm. it ends up kind of saving them money in the long run. So to answer your question, there is a, there's a cost involved, but it ends up saving them money. And if they do want to go through insurance, I, I give them a bill and they can submit to insurance as well. Great. So for someone who is either a weekend or or pushing through pain or maybe wants to take the philosophy of, well, I don't want to get on a 10 out of 10 injury scale and I want to learn 
proper form and movement? How can they best reach out to you? So they can go to my website, www.resultsrehab.org, or email me at Dr. Connolly, PT, doctors abbreviated, at resultsrehab.org. And I'd be happy to chat with them and figure out a plan for them directly. Okay, great. Well, thank you for sharing your insight, James. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Coming up, our next guest is Lisa Tritinovich with Visionating LLC. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, Again, my name is Lisa, and I am the Velocity Detective and so excited to be here. We're excited you having on a program here. So kind of share with us your story as to how you open up your business. Sure. Well, Sherlock Holmes was one of my one of my favorite childhood heroes. He was he was known as the master of deduction and observation and kind of inspired by those skills as well as being a CPA. I really take pleasure in in sleuthing through small businesses to help optimize their cost and maximize their their growth. You know, I I really love to see small business owners with enough passion and drive and and belief in themselves to have launched their own business. But it it breaks my heart to see them flying by the seat of their pants, not knowing where their cash is going or, or even which sale is profitable and all while spending too much time at the office. You know someone like that, right? Uh, yeah, a, a lot of business owners where they see revenue going up, but then they see their profit going down. So kind of share with us, how is that even possible? <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's really three kind of key elements to making sure that you're, you're running your business optimally. Um, one is to make sure that you're, you're not flying by the seat of your pants. You really have some way to capture all of those numbers so that you can make educated decisions. And then controlling that cost creep. It, you know, the costs of your business just seem to like fly out of the door. Those dollars just keep going out. And uh, the way to control those costs is really essential. And then the last element would be to know which growth opportunity is the right one to take at the right time. Uh, do you find sometimes with businesses that uh, as they're growing, the cost almost grows just to keep up or sometimes even faster? So in your experience, what, what is kind of the most common uh, cost creep expenses that kind of sneaks up on the business owner? And little, like two or three years later, they don't even realize it's taking up a bulk of their operating expenses. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> well, it would be competition there between probably your advertising and marketing costs and then your labor costs. Um, first of all, you want to make sure, especially as a small business owner, that you're, you are paying yourself, right? You want to be focused on getting that profit down to your bottom line so that you can take that and put it in your back pocket. And that should be your paramount focus. But in order to do that, you've got to sometimes pay other people to help run your business with you. Maybe a website designer, maybe um, administration. um, And sometimes you can let those costs get out of control 
advertising again uh, and marketing is one of those. And and honestly, it's not just actual dollars themselves, but think about how much time you spend on maybe social media, right? So Mm -hmm. it's time that's taking away from you doing your business a little bit more effectively. If James, for instance, spent oh, five or six hours on Instagram instead of spending one hour on Instagram and five hours uh, actually doing physical therapy with my shoulder, right? Then uh, he would he he has to balance that out, right? So it's not always the dollars that we're talking about, but actually the, the time that's involved also. So it sounds like uh, you mentioned being a CPA and keeping... Uh, cost low, but also looks like you're looking into the hours spent for the business owner and where they're allocating their resources. Uh, not only, uh, you know, you know, as a business owner, you really do need to focus on what you're really, really good at. Now, you do have to keep in mind that you are a business owner as well as as having that expertise in your particular area, right? Mm-hmm. Um And so when you are doing your business, you put your business hat on and you have to allocate time for that. But when it uh, takes away too much time from bringing in that revenue, then you need to consider things like outsourcing or maybe automation. Um, We've got so many tools now with artificial intelligence and those sort of things that you can bring in. Things like um, QuickBooks Online, for instance, to help you with your accounting and your bookkeeping. Right now, they can bring in all of your banking information and have it almost automatically put it in the right category for you. This is kind of the new thing for many business in terms of kind of meeting their needs is having all forms of outsourced services in, in trying to make it cost effective uh, for new business owners just kind of coming in. What is one of the few things they should really heavily consider outsourcing? So first of all, you need to really truly understand the flow of information through your business, because that way you will, you will know how well your business is doing. And so the first thing you need to do is understand it first. And once you understand the flow of information, usually you're following the dollars, okay? So have a separate bank account for your business from your personal bank account. That's paramount. And um, second is to have probably a system, something like QuickBooks or Xero or even waveapps.com is a free application that you can use to help keep your accounting records straight. And if you aren't comfortable putting the information in yourself because it's like overwhelming, then get uh, there. There's a little bit of training out there um, and get a little bit of training just so that you understand how to read the reports at the end, because outsourcing bookkeeping is one of the easiest things to do to give you some extra time in your business. The other one is, of course, like um, social media marketing is to outsource that to something like a virtual assistant. And that will give you a little bit more time back in your in your business. So kind of continue with with, with making most of one's time and really investing in things that they're already expert or very proficient at. 
the next step or difficulty is kind of going after clients or, or kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, chasing after sales. Uh, should a business owner starting out chase after every sale that comes along or should they be a bit more, uh, as you would say, diligent with their time expenditure? Uh, absolutely. So when you are first starting out your business, um, uh, cash flow is absolutely king, right? Um, you guys have all heard the adage, cash is king. And that is absolutely true. You have to have cash in order to pay for things like outsourced bookkeeping and outsourced uh, marketing, right? So um, the very first thing that you should think about is putting into place a spending plan that says, this is the amount that I want to be able to spend to outsource my bookkeeping, to outsource my uh, these other activities. And in order to do that, I need why amount of sales? So first thing to do, put in place a spending plan. Then the second is, yes, you should probably really have cash coming in right away. But as soon as you meet those goals of being able to uh, have the minimum amount necessary to be able to start outsourcing, that's when you can then start thinking about, okay, what market am I really, really targeting? Because the more focused you can get in your niche, um, the more you can get that marketing to be more effective, as well as you can talk to them in a way that really says, I am the expert. When James was talking, for instance, just now, I honestly, my shoulder went, oh, you know, uh, maybe... Maybe I really need to talk to James because I felt like he understood me and my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And same with you and your, your client. The more you can niche down, the narrower you have that, the more expert that you become to them and the more attractive they are to you. That means that you can be more picky about the site, the types of clients that you have. Let me give you an example of, Uh, David, he has been in business for about 34 years now with a landscape architect company. And they're relatively okay, but he was just kind of scrambling again, still after 30 something years, feeling like he was chasing after these sales because he needed to feel busy, if you will. And what was happening was these the sales that he was getting were okay, but the net profit that they were bringing in was kind of low. Once he decided which clients he was going to go for, he said, I'm going to have them only be referrals from prior clients. He said, they're only going to be in these certain zip codes so that I don't have to have my guys traveling all over the country. And then the third one was, if they didn't have above a certain budget, then I'm, I'm not quite willing to work with them because the net profit on that project isn't going to be as great. Once he narrowed that down, oh my gosh, he started getting all kinds of clients, but he got to be able to be more selective about them. He actually was able to deduce which ones were more effective for his business. He enjoyed doing them more. So he got more joy out of coming to work every day. And oh my gosh, his business was more profitable in 2020 
than it was in 2019, even with the pandemic going on. Also, it sounds like not only are they prioritizing or, as you say, niching down a decline and have a higher net profit at the end, it sounds like he's much more happier and can have a bit more spare time rather than running around all over the place. Absolutely. So in his case, he took that extra time and now he's actually going to uh, Martha's Vineyard when COVID will allow, right? And Mm -hmm. spending some time there with his family. So he's taking that extra time and investing it in his family. If you're maybe on the newer side of your business, you want to take that extra time and reinvest it into your business. Either one, now you can make an educated decision on what you do with that extra time instead of just chasing, chasing, chasing all of the time. That's funny because the the segue question was going to be, kind of common in the business world or small business world is all that time is being spent into the business with almost little to no time left for family when kind of the whole premise was that we would have more spare time for ourselves and family. So you did kind of already answer the part of that question is how can a business owner who went in with the intention of having more control of their time and with the intention of having to spend more time with their family, what is a key couple uh, big words of wisdom or advice you would give to them to kind of start that? To start actually having that time yes. instead mm-hmm. of spending all of it at the office. Yeah. I, um, I know it's, you, I'm asking you to have like a college paper thesis <laughs> in, a, <laughs> in a couple of sentences, but maybe just one, one thing that you, you would you point out as a big mistake or opportunity business owners just kind of um, overlook. Right. Well, one of the things that you can do is apply um, like a three step simple thing about is this activity something that I really need to do for the business or is it something that um, I, I can evaluate a little bit more. Right. And I call it NAB, N-A-B. That's evaluate whether you need it or you really want it, right? And the way that you can know that for sure, again, you need to have those numbers that we talked about. You really need to have your financial statements um, uh, well prepared in order to get those numbers and, and see whether or not it's actually a need or a want. And then you can look at Uh, you you should assess the resources that you already have, right? So look internally first. Maybe you have um, something like QuickBooks. Um, An example would be another client of mine, Marco. When he first came to me, he was completely overwhelmed with doing everything manually. Well, all he had to do was turn on a couple of things inside of the accounting program that he was already using, and then it would be automated for him, right? So he was doing payroll um, uh, manually, and he had to come into the office. Now he can do it remotely, and that has saved him substantial amount of time, especially when COVID hit. Now he didn't have to worry about actually uh, going into the office to do it. And then sometimes you have to look at bottleneck Uh, you being the bottleneck, right? Again, that would be, can I outsource it or automate it instead of needing it? So NAB, that would be need versus want, assess your current resources, and are you the bottleneck? Mm -hmm. Wow, 
Okay, well, that, that, that's a, a very good uh, synopsis of what could be a potential massive thesis <laughs> in terms of running a business. So for someone who is looking to come in with a fresh set of eyes and perspective of finding out what to outsource, what are the important numbers and metrics to look at, and to at least consider finding ways to get some family time, how can you best find you, Lisa? Um, of course, my website is www.visionating.com. That's V-I-S-I-O-N-A-T-I-N-G. Um, and my email is lisa at visionating.com. If you go to the resource section on my website, you can find a whole bunch of free things, including every Thursday, I do a free business coaching session on Zoom where you can bring your own questions and um, ask them in a similar format. Great. Well, thank you, Lisa. All right, for our next guest coming up, it's Philip Williams at PNP Business Solutions. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thank you. Very much glad to be here, Anthony. Appreciate the invitation. Great. Thank you for coming on. So kind of share with us your background and your story as to how you opened up your business. Sure. Well, as many people know, I'm a recovering banker. I spent uh, 30 years as a commercial banker uh, in everything from the ginormous mega banks to the small community bank spectrum. I was a regional president in a couple of different banks uh, and really enjoyed that lifestyle and that uh, that uh, vocation until the music stopped. So around 2009, the music stopped in banking because that's when we had the major banking crisis. And of course, right here in Atlanta, Georgia, where I've spent the last 31 years, we were the epicenter for that banking crisis. We had over 86 banks fail at the very beginning of that uh, crisis, and it was not a pleasant place to be. Basically, you told your clients, no, not how can I help you? It was it was all about, at that point in time, protecting our assets. And that's what banks did quite well. And I didn't totally agree with that during that, during that time frame. I thought we should still be that beacon of hope and light in a storm to be able to reach out and help your clients that generally needed help. And that was a time in our uh, banking arena, which that wasn't the case. We, our hands were pretty much tied. It was through a lot of banking regulation. And again, we could go on for hours and I could tell you all the horror stories of what happened here on Ground Zero in Atlanta, Georgia. But that's essentially what drove me away from banking uh, for the next two or three years, as we kind of came out of that scenario, banking is now more of a service driven. It's not really a problem solving. Every bank is a sales culture of service versus what we used to do in the past, which was come in and try to figure out a way that we could help clients uh, meet the needs and, and grow their business. Uh, there are still a few community banks out there that offer this type of service but the majority of the mega banks out there are simply trying to sell you the latest and greatest product, cash management system, et cetera. And every Monday morning they sit around their business huddles talking about how they're going to sell deeper into this particular relationship. Uh, and so that's really their, their aim and their goal. Secondarily, most bankers, there's still a few dinosaurs like myself out there don't really do the credit analysis work. That's all done offsite. Uh, or it's centralized, uh, or it's a, a type of scoring system. So therefore, the banker of the old days of Shawshank Redemption, Andy, my favorite uh, banker and favorite movie, 
uh, could come into your business and understand your your balance sheet and your income statement and look at what's going on within your cash flows and help you figure out how to make your business better. And that is a long lost art, unfortunately, in our current banking society. Mm-hmm. So opening up uh, your consulting firm with that perspective, uh, looking at both the cash flow and understanding how, how, how to help the business along. What is it? So a client company, what, what does it look like working with Phil? Sure. So uh, a PMP stands for passion and prosperity. Uh, most people go into a, a business, as Lisa talked about, because they're passionate about uh, offering a good or service. But many times their passion doesn't result in prosperous uh, or prosperity for them personally or for their business. And that's because they don't know what they don't know. And so in my case, I go in and it's typically a pain point. Either your bank has turned you down uh, or your bank has told you you need to find a new home or something has gone on. And uh, most of my referrals come from either bankers or accountants because they see under the covers and know what's happening in the business. And they go, listen, you need to talk to this gentleman because he can come in and help you figure out how to straighten out your particular situation. If you run out of cash, either you're not collecting the receivables, you're buying too much inventory, there's something happened within your, your, your working capital cycle, the reason you're not generating. Or maybe in the case, of, in, in one of John Ray, I love his, his story on pricing, uh, you know, and, and uh, John has a great articles. Uh, if you've never seen him, uh, please look him up. But it's all about the price. You know, maybe you're not charging enough for your good or service. And therefore, you can't do the things that Lisa was talking about. You can't pay your... Uh, all the all the specialists and people that you need to help you run your business. So it's typically, I won't say elementary, but it really does boil down to just the basic blocking and tackling that helps businesses be successful. And, and again, having worked in the laboratory live as a 30-year banker and talking with business owners who are always looking for capital, because again, back in the days, you know, you, you call your bankrupt because you need money. Then mm-hmm. our goal was to go in and figure out, can you afford to pay us back? And can you generate the cash necessary to, pour, to pay us back? And so during that time frame, I saw a lot of situations where people weren't doing the things that they should be doing that would make their business more successful. And conversely, I saw a lot of very, very, very successful uh, business owners who had amazing business acumen. And so I always want to try to duplicate or replicate what those people did right. So essentially, that's what I now do, having spent that 30 years in the in the, in the laboratory, if you will. And mm-hmm. I launched my business uh, five and a half years ago. It's been a great, uh, a great time. I do want to comment one other thing on business owners. You ask the question, when, a, when, a, when somebody decides to start a business, how do they have all this time? And that's kind of laughable. I'd say go back and work for somebody, because when you work for yourself, it takes 60, 70 hours a week. You don't have a 40 hour, uh, an hour job at that point in time. And so if you're a business owner or someone who wants to be a business owner, a listener out there, don't think you're going to open a business and have a 40 hour work week and all this time free and available. You're going to have so much of your time consumed of just learning your new trade and learning every aspect of what it takes to be a successful business operator. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that we don't know, we think, oh, I could do it better. Well, on a, on a 40 hour a week job, and then we find out what do we sign up for maybe a couple of months in. <laughs> so kind of continuing the, the conversation of, of going, opening up a business and having this now, uh, as you say, change or, or shift 
in the way banks do business uh, with their clients. Can you kind of explain to me what is this trend of how, why is it getting, taking longer to re, either renew line of credit or opening up new, new lines of credit and this new uh, set of questions all the bankers are now requiring or requesting uh, of the clients? Well, we're in the next crisis since the last one that I talked about, the 2008-2009, which was a financial crisis. So the pandemic was not a financial crisis because the government has stepped up largely and continues to step up to help prop up our economy. But in 2008-2009, it was the banks and some of the, the unwise decisions that they made that caused for the debacle of the financial crisis. So we are in a different crisis now, yet we're in a crisis. So now the banks were handing out money left and right back in the spring of 2020 through PPP and EIDL. And they continue now with round two of PPP, which is great. And that's easier money to give out because guess what? In most cases, you don't even have to pay it back. It's a free gift from our government. Or if you do have to pay it back, it's at a very low, low rate interest. And it's still government guaranteed. So banks love that because banks are very risk adverse, especially after 2008, 2009. However, if you are not a PPP recipient, we're talking about a traditional working capital line of credit and your working capital line of credit just came up for renewal. The banks are going to put you under a microscope typically, and they're going to examine exactly how impacted was your business during the past 12 months. So it'll be, in fact, it'll be 12 months this weekend when we shut the country down uh, March 13th, 2020. Um, and as a result, they're going to take, or at least I have experienced it with my own clients that I deal with a much, much longer process to renew your line of credit. They're looking at everything. They want to see your cash balances. It's almost like they don't know you as a, as a, as a business owner. And they're asking for 12 months worth of uh, checking account statements, especially if you didn't bank with that particular, uh, or maybe you had a checking account with them, but not your primary checking account. So they're going to want to see 12 months worth of your checking account statements. They want to see how the cash flows came and left your business to see how much cash reserves you actually have. But their main thing, it's, and it's almost a COVID test. I call it that literally because it's an acid test to see how did your business survive the past 12 months and how was it impacted? And if it was greatly impacted, chances are they're going to trim down your line of credit or in some cases, may not even offer you a line of credit. They may say, thank you very much. But right now we're a little concerned. I mean, I've had horror stories where business owners had a commitment letter last year going into the pandemic. And they, the bank had an about face in April of of last year and pulled the commitment letter and said, sorry. And Oh, by the way, the $10,000 you gave us for deposit. Well, we've already used that for our underwriting, for our attorneys, for the appraisal but we're not going to be able to help you out there. So thank you very much. Good luck. And that was a a live case with an actual client of mine right now that took place last year. And uh, that is just, that's obscene and absurd. And I can't believe that we've gotten to that point. I can tell you in 30 plus years of banking, if I had a a reason to pull your commitment letter, which would be very rare, uh, I would definitely refund your, your uh, deposit at that point in time. We would, we would have eaten those fees but again, it's a little bit different world. And I'm not painting every single bank by my comments because there are still many, many, many good banks. I'm just telling you, the bigger the banks and the smaller your business, the more, the greater the disconnect. If you're a small business owner, you need to be working with a, at a most, a mid-sized bank 
and at best a community bank because they're going to understand your needs more so than the bigger banks. The bigger banks are swimming upstream and going after the the mega hundred million and up revenue size companies, which is clearly not your audience here. Mm. So then kind of segueing almost perfectly into my next question is we're kind of seeing a lot of these smaller regional uh, or community banks um, being merged or bought out by these larger banks. Um, Should that be something of concern for these business owners and whether or not their banking relationships will change? Absolutely. The first thing they're going to tell you is everything's going to be okay. And that's probably not going to be the case. Uh, Anytime a merger takes place and it takes several months for everything to get acclimated, but you have systems issues. You have to map over. Uh, I'm a victim of that right now. Personally, the checking account that I had with the bank that I was with that was recently purchased. Well, they recently told me, well, you know, we don't offer that checking account. So you're going to need to come in and do this or you're going to need to open. You're going to need to up your average monthly balance because otherwise this particular account was going to have certain fees attached to it. And I said, well, I've had it for five years. Well, we know, but we're, we're sorry. We're going to have to do something a little bit differently. So I may have to look for a new bank, to be honest with you, because, again, it's not a scenario where they want to conform with you. You It's, it's clearly when it's a takeover, you, your, your bank was taken over, then your account's going to be taken over, and you will now have to adhere to whatever the policies and procedures were of the acquiring bank. So that's unfortunate for the small business owner. But again, that's a scenario. There's there's a number of banks on the landscape. So my advice is do your homework. So kind of going, continuing to all these factors for a business owner to really work with it. And I don't want to dissuade any new listener in terms of starting opening their own business. But let's kind of go on, on, on the greener pastures and say they've been rocking and rolling all through last year. And then all of a sudden they receive, say, unsolicited offer to buy their business. Um, should that be something in consideration? Should you just accept off the bat or should what other steps should they uh, take into before going on that route? So that's a great question. So, uh, and that's another part of, of what I do. I'm a certified exit planning advisor. So the whole idea of, of exit planning is getting your business ready to sell. So when you have that unsolicited offer, my first question would be, is it a fair offer? What's your business worth? And that's not, that's the $128,000 question to bar the old game show comment. Most business owners have no clue what their business is worth. They may think it's worth some multiple of five times, 10 times, whatever, because that's what their buddy at the country club said that they sold their business for. But in reality, most business owners don't have a clue what their business is worth, nor do they have a clue of how you even would go about going through an exit. So if they get blindsided with the, uh, with someone offering to buy their business, well, that's great. But if you don't, if you've not gone through an evaluation to really understand what the, what the true value drivers of your business would be, then, you know, you may be undercutting yourself. So you would definitely want to seek out a certified uh, uh, value valuation of your business, number one, but it's better to be prepared than not to be prepared. So in most cases, you know, if you ask most business owners, do they even have a formal business plan or an exit plan? The answer is, well, I've got it on my head, but I haven't really written it down. But the vast majority, something like 78% of people don't really have a true business plan. Yet, if you ask them when they're going to exit, 76% say they're going to exit in the next 10 years. 
and 48 percent said they're going to exit in the next five years. So how do you exit if you don't have a formal written plan? You don't know what your business is worth, yet you're going to exit. And so it comes to a whole host of people that come need to come together under the one premise. It's, it's almost you takes a village to sell a business. So the old uh, commercials that you hear on TV and and Anthony, this is clearly your background now. And that's uh, working with your uh, uh, personal financial planner. What's your goal? What's your number? What are you going to need if you walk away from the business today to in order to continue to sustain the lifestyle that you've been accustomed to? And so once we know what that number is, now we compare that to what's the valuation of your business. And if we have a disconnect there, so if you need $3 million in the bank because you've got a lavish lifestyle and you want to travel and your business is worth a million dollars, well, we've got a gap. So either you're going to be a Walmart greeter or working at Home Depot on the side, or we're going to have to figure out how to improve the valuation of your business. And that's a whole nother conversation, but there are certain value drivers that you can, uh, uh, levers that you can pull within the business to make it more valuable. But a very simple question for all the people that may be listening right now is if you're a business owner and you can't take a two-week vacation, you can't you can't walk away from your business. Oh, it will never happen because uh, we, the place would go to pieces. You know, I, I, so if that's the case, you'll never be able. It's rarely you'll be able to sell your business because your business is a hundred percent revolving around the business owner. And so you need to put people in place, people and processes in place that your business can be successful, whether you're there or whether you're uh, on a, uh, a Viking River cruise in Europe somewhere. Because when you get to that point, now your business is sellable. And so those are some of the things of, of, of a number of, that, of, of areas that a business owner needs to consider before they get that unsolicited offer. Oh, well, I guess that kind of answers my uh, potential upcoming question of if a business owner is burnt out and they say, you want enough of this and they want to sell, it sounds like th- they need a lot more work to do. I call it runway. It's like landing a plane. Uh, you need, uh, depending on the business and, and the complexity of your business, it could be as much as three years preparation work to five years preparation work. It really depends on on how well you've run your business because good exit planning is good business management. That's You don't have all your eggs in one basket. You've got diversity within your your, your management basis that and, and people are, are uh, empowered to, to do the, the, the day-to-day decision-making that needs to be done. You're not working with one particular mega company, and if that company goes away, then suddenly your business is out of business. Uh, you, you, you have a good diversity from a standpoint of uh, where your business comes from and the cash flows. So there's a number of things that have to be put in place. And then you're counting. You know, you can't have uh, Aunt Betty or Cousin Fred, uh, you know, uh, doing your, your books and your balance sheet doesn't even balance and it, it doesn't reconcile your net worth each each uh, year. So you need those type of things in place because when a business pr- prospective buyer comes in, they're going to tear your, your company to shreds and you think it's worth X. They're going to beat you down because you don't have certain things in place. And those are going to be major value destroyers, not, va- not, not, not value drivers, but very value destroyers. That's going to that's going to lessen the, the value of your business. So the the idea of hiring an exit planner up front is it helps you get ready uh, to sell before you go to market so that all those uncertainties have been solved. And, and so you'll get a much better multiple. It comes back to a, what I call 
you can either be a lifestyle business where you run everything through the business and you pay no taxes and you got your kids working at the business and two or three cars, uh, or you can have an enterprise business and you run it much like Home Depot or Coca-Cola, where you're looking to try to build that bottom line and you know you're going to pay taxes, but that's okay because if you're paying taxes, you're making money. What a novel concept. Mm -hmm. So how in the world can you sell a business that's shown losses for 10 years? Uh, and the answer is, well, you can, but you're not going to get very much for it. Yeah, that was like a little segue. You're just answering all the questions coming up in terms of, hey, some business owners, where they think of, as, as you would say, a lifestyle business, writing off all these expenses, but it sounds like in doing so, it's really hurting them in the long term when they're looking to sell out. And it's a paradigm shift, uh, Anthony, in our country. And I don't care who you are, where you are, if you're an accountant, uh, on April 15th, you're and and you call up your business owner and say, well, guess what? We've got to write a check for X. And of course they don't need to really file until September 15th. But I'm using April 15th for simplicity. Um, they're going to be upset. I'm going to get a new account. You know, are you kidding me? We need to be able to write this off and blah, 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 whatever the case may be. And that's how we've been hardwired as, uh, as Americans, as American business owners is the goal is not to pay taxes. So if you're going great in the third and fourth quarter, so I've never, I've, I've always seen so many business owners, <coughs> well, it's time to buy some new equipment because I've got to do a 179 depreciation write-off because if I buy X pieces of equipment, I can write those off. It lowers my, my profits and either gives me a break even or puts me in a loss situation. Therefore, I don't have to pay taxes, but I can, you know, have a nice super duty pickup truck or whatever the case may be that the, the business owner decided that they wanted to, to, to do. And that's the wrong way of thinking. If you're really trying to create value, if you're really trying to create enterprise value in a business that at some point in time you want to sell and you've, you've worked all these hard years and in, in birthing this child, which is your business. And most business owners are as proud of their business as they are their children. Uh, in order to do that, you need to change your mindset and understand that it's okay to pay Uncle Sam taxes. I don't mean be crazy, but it's also okay to, to temper that. But you want to be able to build something of value that somebody will want to buy. Uh, and during the pandemic, I had a, here's a great success story. Uh, uh, I'd been working with a client for three years, getting ready to sell. They went to market during a pandemic. You think, well, that's crazy. No, it's a red hot market. We had nine people from all over the country vying for this business. And they walked away with a sweet multiple and uh, more so than they ever imagined they would sell their business for. And it was a service business and it sold uh, in December. Uh, everything, they're very, very happy. And it was a great success story, but it didn't just happen overnight. We started three years ago, 2016, actually, is when I was first engaged at that business. Well, there's a lot of gems of wisdom. I imagine we're only really scratching the tip of the iceberg in terms of having a business owner, having the foresight to put all these planning in place, how best can they uh, begin this journey and, and reach out to you, Philip? How can they find you? Uh, my website is ppbusinesssolutions.com. And it's pwilliams at ppbusinesssolutions.com. Check out the website. Uh, there's uh, lots of information on there as far as some of the trouble spots that I try to help you with. Great. Well, thank you, Philip. Thank you. Appreciate it, Anthony. Great. So continuing kind of uh, our change in our show format, I'll be having my legalist disclosure, but 
before going heading out to that, I would like to, at the tail end, bring our three guests back in with one or two universal questions. So basing on the theme of today's podcast, uh, it's a lot of discussion in terms of having foresight, planning ahead, and finding a consultant before the pain goes from 1 to 10 out of, into 10 to 10. So kind of weaving in all the accounting and the business uh, consulting and our PT uh, background specialist here on the panel. The question will be, what is the top sign that you see in terms of a mistake, whether it be a client or patient that you see most common and something that you would like for them to take away from the show as a gem or word of wisdom? So that'll be the question I'll say again is, what is the one common sign that you see, whether it be a patient or a client, that is a key hallmark where they this is when they really should reach out to me uh, or someone in my field in terms of a professional. So getting to the legalese, this show is sponsored and brought to you by yours truly, Anthony Chan, with a Lighthouse Financial Network, securities and advisory services provided and offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., RAA, member FINRA SIPC, RAA is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products or services referenced here are independent of RAA. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me at my number at 631-465. 9090. Uh, my extension is 5075, or at best, uh, my email, which is really just my full name, Anthony Chen, C H E N at L F N L L C dot com. And now to bring our three lovely guests back in for our one big word of wisdom to our audience. Uh, James, I guess we can uh, kind of start with you, our, our, our PT specialist what is the one common sign you see in your patient and you just thought oh i wish i could just turn back the hands of time and we could have fixed it right there yeah so you know i'm glad you pointed to that because like i mentioned before it's as much as it is that they're they do too much they push through the pain on the other end of the spectrum they can just shut down and not do anything because they have an injury and they're afraid that if they move that they're going to make it worse you know so it's this fear of movement and this anxiety that comes into play where they don't do anything. So they just sit on the couch and inherently our body likes to move. Um, so we want to just, we want to ease back into motion, but in part of what I deal with, I feel like in addition to a physical therapist, sometimes I'm a mental health therapist where I have to kind of tease through all those emotions that they're getting with movement. Um, and that's why it's, it's kind of imperative to come to me at that time. I mentioned it before having graded exposure. So we find out, what things irritate it, what things don't. And we start with the exercises that do, do not irritate it, and then slowly build them up from there to kind of address those physical and mental barriers. Um, so that's a, that's a point. Like I said, the earlier you address that, the better, because over time it's just going to get worse. So definitely I'd love to, for people to reach out to me if they have any kind of questions along that spectrum. Thank you. And Lisa? Well, to be honest, somewhat similar to James, I... Uh, I see so many business owners just winging it. They will run through the entire year with running all of their finances through their personal bank account. 
And they just wait for the end of the year with this giant box of receipts that they might just try and dump on some poor bookkeeper or, or tax accountant trying to uh, figure out just their taxes when they need to understand that running a business starts every day. So doing nothing until the end of the year is somewhat like what James was saying. You really need to start out with separating your business and your personal banking and credit cards. Do not use your personal credit card to pay for business expenditures. Don't you don't run uh, the money through your own bank account, have separate ones. Right. And, um, and if you, if you just are overwhelmed by that, uh, reach out and, and get a little bit of education because a little bit goes a long way with running your business on a day-to-day basis or very minimum month to month, rather than just at the end of the year, you don't run your business for your taxes, even though you do, as Philip pointed out, want to pay a lot of taxes. I want you to pay million dollars in taxes because that means your business is doing fantastic. But, um, but you really have to have a, a system in place and separating your bank account from your personal is the first step. Great. Well, thank you, Lisa. And Phil, taking us home. A denial. Uh, and I'll go a little bit into that. But years ago, and I wish I would remember the CPA's name who, who gave me this advice. But he says, you know what the definition of an entrepreneur is? And I said, no. He says, that's someone who doesn't know when they're taking a risk. If you think about it, it's very true. As a business owner, you just kind of jump out there and you just start doing it because you don't know any better. And because nobody's ever told you you couldn't do it. And that's what makes America so great. But the most common issue that I see is denial. And what I mean by deny is deny that you have a problem or deny that there's an issue. And that denial continues until a pain point happens that kind of I'll go back to our PT uh, example, you know, until that pain hits, then you realize, wait a minute, maybe I do have a problem. I, sh- I should get this checked out. And that's typically when my phone rings, it's after the pain is hit and they've been turned down or they're trying to do an expansion and their banker said, no, thank you. We can't help you. Uh, so the denial aspect of it, and, and it's in and, and human nature, it's anybody who's an attorney who does wills and estates know that the last thing anybody wants to do is prepare their will because they're going to live forever. The last thing that a business owner wants to do is think that they're going to have to sell their business because they're going to live forever. Or I'm going to get that. I'm going to get to that at some point in time. And they never do. And I call them the five killer D's and that's death, disability, divorce, uh, disagreement and distress. One of those five D's will happen to your business and you need to be prepared for that. So to help, to help get you prepared, it all goes back to a good business plan, which is a good exit plan. Well, thank you uh, for your words of wisdom. So it's almost like you're painting a picture of there's real life and things happen and not everything <laughs> is rose colored and in a fairy tale Disney uh, ending, but that is the goal, right? Exactly. Well, thank you all, everyone, Philip, James, and Lisa. And that is today's program. Thank you for listening in to another episode of Family Business Radio.